think about the concept of adoption, which is going to be our theme for today. Adoption. It really is a miracle. We often think of biological birth as being a miracle. All the things that need to take place and all the things that need to go just right for a baby to be born from conception to exiting the womb of the mother. But adoption as well is a miracle because here you have a baby, a child, maybe even an adult, who at one point was a stranger, at one point was far off, at one point had nothing to do with these people. But then something changes, and they are no longer strangers. They are no longer far off, but they become a son, or they become a daughter. And they are made closer to these people they now call their parents, made closer than even the walls of their own house. If you ever, ever watched the, the incredible classic movie, Ben-Hur, it's a, it's a whopper of a movie. I tried watching it for like Friday Youth Group one time. It took me like four weeks. I don't even think we finished it. It's like four hours long. But if you ever watch that movie and it's got the, it's tied for the record for most Academy Awards won along with uh, Titanic and Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Anyway, in this movie, just to kind of spoil some of it for you because I don't think you guys are going to take my movie recommendations. But in this movie, Jonah Ben-Hur, he was part of this Jewish aristocratic family. Uh, but because of a misunderstanding, he is sold off into slavery. And he is a slave, not just a regular slave, but he's a slave on a Roman galley ship, a Roman, a, a Roman warship. This takes place in around Jesus' time, and Jesus appears in this movie as well. But he's on this Roman warship, and <coughs> he does this grueling slave work, right? He, they are forced to row for this ship, and they're forced to go into battle for a nation that they do not call their own. And... The ship is commanded by this very high-ranking officer. And he goes into battle. They go into a battle, and his ship is rammed. Their sh his ship sinks. And, uh, but because of some circumstances before he's able to escape, not only does he escape, but he saves the life of this commander, this commander who was in charge of all the guards who had brutally whipped him and enslaved him, right? And he is saved, and he even saves this commander from committing suicide, right? He's, there's floating, it's, it's like a Titanic, uh, people on a door situation, but two people can fit on it this time. Uh, and, you know, he's, this commander's trying to off himself, and Jonah Ben-Hur prevents him from doing that. Because this commander is filled with despair, thinking that the battle has been lost, right? All these ships going down in flames. But eventually, another Roman ship comes, and tell, delivers the news to this commander that it actually you guys won the battle. And so this commander, being so filled with gratitude towards Ben-Hur, offers Jonah Ben-Hur his freedom. But not only does he give him his freedom, right? He offers him adoption. He says, Ben-Hur, not only do I free you from bondage, from slavery, I want to make you my son. And what happens when he makes him his son? Because he's such a high-ranking officer in the Roman army, or Roman navy, Ben-Hur goes from this slave 
who had less than nothing. He was considered less than dirt. And he goes and he lives in a palace. And he, is, he, he has fur robes and he has rings on his fingers and necklaces on, on his neck and fancy shoes. And he becomes the rich son of this commander. And he goes from a slave to this hero and this aristocrat and this rich man. I hope you watched the movie. It's a really good movie. But uh, <coughs> just like Ben-Hur, we too have been adopted. And we have adopt been adopted just as our passage today says. We've been adopted from slavery into riches beyond our comprehension. We have been adopted from condemnation, as Romans 8.1 suggests. We have been adopted from condemnation, from the wrath of God. We have been adopted out of that into God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy. And so today we're going to take a deeper look into what adoption means for us. And I don't think anybody here is adopted. Right? Okay. Um, but adoption is one of the <coughs> most profound concepts in the scripture. And we're going to take a little bit, uh, we're going to take a deeper look at it today following the pattern of our verse today. And our verse suggests three things that adoption provides us with or that it leads us into via adoption, right? The first is that we are adopted unto freedom, right? God adopts us unto freedom. The second is that we are adopted into family. You would think that would be the first point, but it's, I'm just following the verse, okay? Right, so we are adopted unto freedom, we are adopted into family, and then we are adopted for intimacy. I tried to do three Fs, but I couldn't come up with a third F, so we're going FFI. So let's just dive right into it. We are adopted unto freedom, point number one. We read that <coughs> uh, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You did not receive the spirit of slavery. Here we see Paul once again invoking this concept of the spirit, right? And invoking the concept of the duality of the potentiality of spirits, right? Either, right, as, he, as we've been reading over the past 14 verses, either you are of the spirit of life or you are of the spirit of death. Either you are in the spirit of the flesh or you are the spirit of Christ. You are either in the spirit of death or you are in the spirit of life. Like He makes that duality very clear. And he once again invokes that when he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Right? And in doing so, our minds should immediately go, okay, if there is a spirit of slavery, then there must be also a spirit of freedom. But before we get to the spirit of freedom, what is the spirit of slavery? What is it that we are enslaved to? If indeed we do not have the spirit of freedom. If we are not free, what are we enslaved to? Well, Paul makes it clear. To fall back into fear. The slavery that grips us before we put our faith in Christ. The slavery that grips us perhaps even when we put our faith in Christ. And we have those moments where, uh, we'll get to that. But the spirit of slavery that grips us 
is slavery is the slavery of fear. We are enslaved to fear. And this fear is the thing that condemns us. Fear is the thing that leads us on the path to destruction. Why? Why do I say that? It's because slavery to, it's because our slavery to fear is our slavery to sin. And why do I say that? It's because our slavery to sin, uh, it's because our sin is rooted in fear. We are enslaved by fear because we are enslaved by sin because uh, because sin is rooted in fear. All sin is rooted in fear. It's because why do we why do we pursue sin? Why do we go after the things that grieve the heart of God? It's because we are convinced that if I do not have this thing, I will not be content. Why are we, uh, especially in this, you know, this holiday season, this capitalistic society, why are we so prone to want and lust after things, right? Why does Black Friday and Cyber Monday, why does that grip us so tightly? It's because we, are, we have been made to believe by our culture at large, but also because of our sinful hearts. Right? We can't just blame society, okay? But it, this, there, it's just tapping at a, an inherent thing that is inside of our f- sinful flesh hearts. That if I do not have this thing, I will not be happy. And that is our fear. If I do not have this thing, my life will not be complete. <coughs> Why do we lust, like sexually, right? If I, if I don't, not just lust, our greed, our, our, even our anger, right? Like if I don't get retribution against this person who has hurt me, then I will not be complete. And at the, at the core of that is our ultimate fear, which is the same fear that Adam and Eve had in Genesis 3, which is that God is lying to me. That is our ultimate fear, right? When God calls us to pursue holiness and to flee immorality and unrighteousness, our fear is, if I listen to God, Debbie, that's my ass. All right. If <laughs> our fear is, if I obey God, I'm not actually going to be happy. Our fear is, if I pursue righteousness and I avoid all of these things, and, and then we look out at the world, and, we, and Proverbs talks about this too, and we see that the wicked seem to be having a great time. And we see that the unrighteous are having a blast in life. And we think to ourselves, wait a minute. Why do they look so happy? I want to be happy. Is God lying to me? And that's our ultimate fear. And that is the fear that Adam and Eve had when the serpent came to them and said, did God really say that you were going to die? And they were like, oh, maybe not. Fear is what grips us. Fear is what enslaves us because it causes us to question the goodness and trustworthiness of God. And yet... Fear itself, the, the fear itself is not necessarily and inherently sinful. 
right? It is, it is true that fear leads us to sin. And yet, it is not fear that is sinful. Indeed, it is the object of our fear that determines its legitimacy. What do I mean by that? Well, we all, maybe most of us know the seventh verse of Proverbs 1, right? What does it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And <clears throat> what does it say? What does Jesus say in Matthew 10? I don't have it written down, but it says something to the effect of, why do you fear something? <laughs> Sorry, God. why do you fear those who can destroy the body when you should fear the one who can destroy your soul, right? Fear itself is not what is sinful. It is the object of our fear that is sinful, right? And so when we fear, when we fear the, the possibility that God is lying to us, or we fear maybe that we're missing out on something because we're not, per, we're not, because we're obeying God's word, right? That leads to sin. And that is the thing that grips us. But freedom from sin, the freedom that Paul talks about, when we are adopted into the family of God, which we'll discuss next, but when we're adopted into the family of God, we are freed from, from the fear of our sin into, and we are adopted into a fear and a righteous fear of God. A fear of God that says what he says is true. And he means what he says. And, <clears throat> and when it talks about how God is mighty and powerful and strong and he knows everything and he, his reach extends to the vast reaches of the universe and his touch touches even the smallest depths of our heart. When we actually understand what that means, right, that God knows you and he knows the deepest part of you and he knows those parts of your heart that you will never, ever, ever tell anyone about. God already knows it. That is the fear that grips us, the fear of God that compels us. And yet, uh, and so our adoption, when we are adopted into family of God, by the spirit of God, it equips us with a healthy fear of God, right? We are no longer enslaved to the slavery of fear of sin, but we are equipped with the fear of God. Because on one hand, God is to be most feared because he is wrapped in an unapproachable glory. It's like um, if you've never gone camping before and then you go with like a pyromaniac and then there's like piling wood and like gasoline on the fire, right? Like you're afraid of that fire because it's insane and you don't want to approach the fire, okay? Uh, and if you do, you die, right? That is just a taste of the unapproachable glory of God. And yet, and yet, I'm, you know, because I'm, Sorry, before I get to the yet, right, you know, you think about Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, where Isaiah, he comes face to face with the glory of God, and prob he probably didn't even see all of it, and what was the first response that he had? He said, woe is me. I am doomed. I am utterly 
effed because <laughs> I, because this this glory is above me, and uh, that was the first response he had, and that is that is a fear of God that we ought to have for God. Yet on the other hand, even though God is to be most feared, He is also to be most trusted, because God, and He alone is most concerned for our joy and for our contentment. Out of all the beings in the universe, including ourselves, God is most passionate about us being happy. Have you ever considered that? That God cares more about you being happy than you do you care about being happy. And that is, that should also invoke a sort of fear of God, that God not only wants me to be happy, but he knows what makes me most happy, and he wants that for me. The psalmist in Psalm 34, what does he say? He doesn't say, the Lord is good, so you're going to have to work for it. No, he invites us all in, and he says, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. If you know me, I don't share food. Joey does not share food. But God shares his food. <laughs> God shares his food, and his food is good. His banquet table is big enough for all of us. It's big enough for you. And he's saying, come, have a taste. Right? Because what, what is our ultimate joy? What is our ultimate pleasure? Our ultimate pleasure is in God. And he offers himself to you, and he is willing to share. But how can we trust God, right? We can say, yeah, the Lord is good. We can say, yeah, sure, he wants us to trust him, right? Everyone wants you to trust them, right? Trust me, guys. I know the way. But how can we really trust God? How do we know that what he's saying is true? <clears throat> how can we know that he is contending for our joy, even though he is this fearful, unapproachable, glorious being. In 1 John 4, it says, perfect love casts out fear. Remember, we are slaves to fear, but perfect love casts out fear. And perfect, complete love was demonstrated for us through the person and work of Jesus. That is how we know that God cares and longs for our happiness. Because on Christmas Day, he really didn't have to do this, but he did it when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the form of a helpless baby. And this helpless baby one day was going to be killed, was going to be murdered by the very people he came to save. We are adopted unto freedom because Jesus has demonstrated his perfect love, that perfect love that casts out all fear. And drives out the enslaving spirit of fear. All right, so that's point number one. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so we're, so we're going to, we'll see if we get through this. All right, so point number two, we are adopted into family, right? Now, obviously, if you're adopted, you're adopted into family. But... Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel, even higher than justification. 
right? If you were with us for other weeks, right, you've been hearing me hammer on and on and on about justification, how justification is sufficient for us, how if we put our faith in Christ, then we are justified. And this justification is the fundamental and primary gift of the gospel because it meets and addresses our fundamental and primary need. Our, our first primary fundamental need is that we stand under the wrath and condemnation of God because we have sinned against the holy God. But because of what Christ has done, we are forgiven completely by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And that is justification. We are saved completely. We are forgiven completely. We are united to Christ completely. And we are saved from the misery of sin and death, and we are reconciled to God. And if that was it, that would be enough. Justification is sufficient. If we are just saved from our sin and we are made right with God, that's enough. That we, we would be okay with that. And yet, there's more. The gospel is not just that we are saved. The gospel is not just that we are forgiven, but we are brought into the family of God. Adoption is obviously family language, right? Justification, it's a big four syllable five syllable word, right? And it has all sorts of like boring legal connotations, right? It's like, oh, we're like convicts and you know, God is the judge and there's a legal process that happens and we are justified, right? And not that that makes it less beautiful, but it, you know, there's sort of like stoicism to it, right? There's, it's a kind of coldness. It's legal language. And it views God as a judge and we are those who are standing under the judgment of God. But adoption, adoption is family language. And to be... Uh, and it doesn't simply view God as a judge, but God is now a father. And to be right with God via justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, that's an even greater thing. We are not simply made right with God. We are loved by God. We are beloved by God. We are cared for intimately by God. And if this is true, if our adoption through, through faith in Christ Jesus is true, then there is no one who loves you more than God. Because when God does something, he does it. He does it extra. Right? Think about the prodigal son, right? And think about how his son, after he messes up, he, and he's going back to his father, and he's kind of rehearsing what he's doing. He's like, all right, God, uh, Father, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Just if you take me back, I'll be your servant, right? That's what he's thinking. And for the son, the prodigal son, his view of how he's going to atone for his sins, how he's going to earn the forgiveness of his father is simply justification, right? If I go to my dad and I, I just work my butt off, I'm going to pay off the debt that I owe him, right? And, that, and, and then we'll be square. We'll be even, Right? But the father sees him from a long way off and he doesn't say, ah, he's come back to pay back all the money I gave him. He doesn't do that. He runs to him and embraces him and he sees him not merely as someone who owes him a debt, but he sees him as his son. And if he sees him as his son, just as this, the commander saw Jonah Ben-Hur, what he gets, what the son gets, is not simply that his debt is absolved, but he gets all of the benefits, all of the privileges, and all of the blessing of the father's family. I wonder if we, too, understand the depths 
of the riches of the glory of God that have been made available freely to us because we have been adopted into his family. Do we just look at God as a judge and saying, God, you know, I trust you, but, you know, and I'm just going to live my, you know, I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll try to, you know, I won't smoke too much weed and I'll just, I won't lie too much. And, I'll, you know, I'm going to try to live my life good so that, you know, maybe the, the, the scales will be tipped in my favor and you'll like me a little bit. Do we see him simply as a judge who's, count, who, who's keeping track of all the good and bad things we do? Is he our Santa? Santa's the, Santa sucks. Like, I, I, I don't, yeah, anyway. Uh, or do we see God as a father? And, and I know like a lot, for some of us, maybe a lot of us, we have a pretty like warped view of our fathers, right? Um, maybe a lot of us have, have like family trauma, have trauma with our parents. And perhaps it is that trauma that's like informing our view of God, our father, right? Like my, even my earthly father couldn't, couldn't take care of me. How could a God take care of me, right? How, you know, I, my earthly father doesn't understand me. How can a holy God understand me, right? But, our, but the truth of our adoption into God's family, it must inform our, this is kind of an aside, but our, our, the truth of our adoption must uh, inform our feelings concerning our earthly family. Our heavenly family must inform our earthly family, not the other way around, right? And so don't read the trauma. It, your trauma is real. The, the hurt that you've experienced, that is real. But more real than that, if that's even possible, more real than that is the love and care that God has for you. And so may God's love dictate not only our worldview, but our family view. That the love that maybe our fathers could not provide for us, the love that our mothers may be denying us, God doesn't simply fill in those holes, but he overflows. That is the love, that is the crazy love like the prodigal son's father. That's the crazy love that God has for you. And then finally, we are adopted for intimacy when we cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. In the Greek, he's actually using two languages here, one in Aramaic and one in Greek. Abba is the Aramaic and Father, Pater, is the Greek. And, um, you know, (coughs) the other other day, Debbie said Daddy for the first time. Kind of freaked me out. But uh, she goes to daycare, a bunch of white girls. So, you know, when, they, when their dads come, they go, Daddy. And then so she was, like, following them, I guess. She, she goes, Daddy. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm up. But um, <coughs> and when Debbie, Debbie says, Appa, and I think it's really convenient that the Aramaic is very similar to the Korean, right? When Debbie says, Appa, she doesn't just say, hey, Appa. It's kind of like how we do when we become teenagers and, like, we don't, love her dad anymore but we, you know, she doesn't just say Appa. she goes Appa! like she screams it she exclaims it she shouts it right especially in the morning when i'm still sleeping but children they are filled like little children something we really need to look like we often think children need to look up to us we need to look up to children because the way that they interact with their fathers they are filled with delight just because their dad is there just because their father has shown up and they are filled with a kind of exclamatory excitement because, because Appa's here. And that's the kind of intimate access to God that we have 
as his children because we have been adopted into his family. That we can cry out with abandon, Abba, Abba, Father. And we know that he's there and he's there for us. But that's kind of me reading myself into this scripture passage. I don't, I don't think Paul knew any Korean. And when Paul thinks about Abba, Father, what he's actually suggesting to us is he's using this language that Jesus himself uses when he prays to God the Father. Jesus calls God Abba. And what Paul has in view is Jesus' sonship, his closeness, his oneness even to the Father. We, we, we are sitting here in the building of Trinity Church, and we believe in the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is three persons and one God, this mysterious doctrine that we will never completely fully comprehend. And yet we believe and we confess that God is one. And this oneness is what Jesus shares with the Father. And yet if we are saved and justified through faith in Christ, if we have been adopted into his family, and if we have the spirit of Christ, we also have the spirit of Christ's sonship. Which means... However intimate Jesus is to the Father, that is how intimate God is to us and how intimate we are to God. Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer, you love them even as you love me. However much God loves Jesus is how much God loves you. And so um, we are called to intimacy, but perhaps we have a hard time with being intimate with God. When we think of God, we don't think, oh, man, I love this guy. We think, oh, I forgot to read my Bible again. Or this prayer is really long. Or this sermon is really long. Um, and we, we have trouble, you know, we have trouble with intimacy. Like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be intimate with God? I remember when I was young, and perhaps you empathize with me, we don't really understand, like, I didn't really understand why my parents would say or do certain things, Right? And they would tell me, like, hey, we have no money. <laughs> and I was like, I see the hundos in Kappa's wallet, right? Uh, and, then you real, and then as you get older, you realize, like, hundos, I mean, that's a lot of money, but we're not talking hundos. We're talking thousandos. <laughs> and, and rent's got to be paid and mortgages need to be paid. And so you begin to understand that, right? You, you understand what money starts to mean. When you're younger, you don't understand why you're being disciplined. You don't understand why you're not allowed to put that in your mouth. But as you get older... You understand, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be swallowing batteries, right? I never swallowed a battery. But Debbie put a battery in her mouth the other day. Holy moly, <laughs> wow. Um, I think that's the, yeah, I had to make, I made her cry. <laughs> but, and she's going to be like, why can't I put this in my mouth? Perhaps one day, hopefully, she understands why she can't put batteries in her mouth. As we begin to mature, just in age, right, we understand the heart and we still disagree with our parents. We still have a hard time kind of jiving with them, some of us, right? But we understand them more. And we are, I we are intimate in a way, in, in a sense that we understand where they're going and why they told us and did certain things to us. The basic and unsexy means of grace that God gives us, reading the Bible, praying, gathering on Sundays, 
things. It may seem unfruitful for us. It may seem like nothing's happening. It may even be exhausting. But something that my Hebrew professor told us as we were you know, going through the first two semesters of Hebrew and we were getting our asses kicked, right? Like Hebrew is really hard, especially biblical Hebrew. And she was saying like, you know, every week you're going to be really confused. And so that was really reassuring because I felt like an absolute idiot. And I still probably was, but I felt less like an idiot because she was assuring us, you know, as we go through every week, you're going to be learning something new and you're not going to know what's going on. But after a few weeks, you know, four, six, ten, you're going to look back. And you're, lo- you're going to look at that second week where you learned vowels. And you're going to be like, wow, that's really easy. I know that. And that, that's similar to what happens to us in our spiritual walk, too. You're reading the Bible, and it just seems like drudgery sometimes. I hope it doesn't. I really hope the Bible comes alive to you. And that is my hope and prayer. And, I, and that's why it's important to pray before you read the Bible. But most of the time, it's not going to be like that. Because reading is hard. And you're going to read it, and you're going to be like, what is what is even going on here? But I beseech you, especially as this new year comes up and we're all thinking about our new Bible reading plans, I beseech you, I, just stick with it. Really, just stick with it. Just, and, and, and see what God does with that. Because as you, as you look at that list and you're like, holy moly, I have 350 days to go. Rather than thinking in that way, when you're on day 15, 30, 60. Take the time to look back and see, wow, this is what God has been revealing to me over these past few days and weeks and months. As you pray and you're saying, oh, I feel like I'm talking to air, think about and consider the prayers that God answers along the way. As we gather here on Sundays and all these other things, think about, (coughs) it's very hard to see where we're headed spiritually. We can't see the future, but it's very easy to see how far we've come. And so trust in the facts of intimacy over the feelings of intimacy. That's what I'm trying to say. Here are the facts of intimacy, that God has given us access to himself through his word, through prayer, through fellowship. And so engage the facts and see how the spirit of God transforms you. And so, uh, sorry it took so long, but uh, if I could invite the praise team up, uh, let us consider our adoption because we are adopted unto freedom. Freedom from the freedom from slavery to fear into a slavery uh, into not into a freedom <sighs> into a freedom in Christ. We are adopted into God's family and he loves you very much. And we are adopted into <coughs> intimacy with God. And even though it might seem hard The Spirit of God is with us wherever we go. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you did not simply save us and then leave us alone, but you have adopted us as your own. You have adopted us as your sons and daughters. And with that, we have received the full blessing and benefit of being called your children. And so God, may we consider in our adoption that we have been freed from the slavery to fear, Indeed, we have now the freedom and spirit of life. We have been adopted into your family as you call us your sons and daughters. And we've been adopted into intimacy with you.
walk along this journey with you. May we be reminded that your Holy Spirit is with us, if indeed we have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be with our church as we approach Christmas Day and think about uh, what it took for us to be adopted into your family as we approach this new year, as we uh, seek to grow closer in intimacy with you through the basic things, fun 